choosing to do a psychedelic and how you choose to do a psychedelic is a deeply personal choice. To a large degree, it's just about getting quiet, I think, and really asking yourself, why do I want to have this experience? Am I ready to have this experience? What's going to make me feel most supported? Hello and welcome to Here in L.A., Angelino Heights edition. Today, we talk with Shelby Hartman. Shelby is the editor and publisher of the gorgeous 94-page Double Blind magazine, uh, which you can find at Skylight Books. And it focuses on hallucinogens of all sorts. We talk about publishing a gorgeous print magazine in the year of our Lord 2022. What's so interesting about living in Angelino Heights? We also talk about shrooms, acid, and ayahuasca. So turn it up, man. And if you hear growling or microphones being rustled, don't trip out. That's Shelby's adorable golden doodle, Billy, saying hi. Hi, Billy. So let's welcome Shelby Hartman. Hey, everybody. I'm here in Angelino Heights with Shelby Hartman. Yay! Hello. We're in your beautiful home in Angelino Heights. Are there any not beautiful homes in Angelino Heights? Uh, I'm, I don't know. I haven't been in every single one of them, so I couldn't tell you. Well, let's just pause and let's go do that. <laughs> but I will tell you that um, there are a lot of very strict uh, preservation laws, architectural preservation laws in my neighborhood. Most of the homes were built between 1900 and 1910. This house was built in 1904. And, you know, there's a historic, I was, I was mentioning to you before the the podcast, there's, um, it's designated as a historical preservation zone, which basically means that people in the neighborhood who care volunteer to be the aesthetic police and they walk around and if someone, you know, buys some kind of cheap looking something or other and tacks it to the front of their house that doesn't fit cohesively with the neighborhood, then they can make a stink about it with the city. Um, with the whole city? Yeah, I don't know exactly how you put in a complaint. I don't know what the process is like, but people around here really are very committed to maintaining the sort of... So if I put up a pirate flag... I think a flag is probably okay. They're more poli- trying to police permanent structural changes, mm. such as like, uh, I'm really not an architect, <laughs> but you know, the dingles and the dangles. Wow. <laughs> Uh, how long have you lived in this beautiful house? I moved in in May of 2020. What uh, brought you to this neighborhood? Well, I wanted to live on the east side of Los Angeles because it's cool. I was moving <laughs> back to L.A. for Double Blind and also because I wanted to be close to my parents. Double Blind is the magazine I started, um, for those of you who don't know. And... Um, yeah, I was just looking around, looking in Echo Park, looking in Silver Lake, and found this place on West Side Rentals, and, <laughs> you know, I just fell in love with it, so. Where'd you move here from? I was living in New Orleans, and then I decided I was going to move back to California because of Double Blind to be close to my folks, and I moved in with them just quote, temporarily while I was going to be finding a place in L.A. and then 
you know, Double Blind wasn't making money yet. I was running a startup, yada, yada, yada. I blinked. A year went by. I was with them in Huntington Beach for a year. And then I, I was about to turn 30 and I was like, I got to get out of here. I was like, I can't turn 30 living at home. No way, Jose. So you were in Huntington Beach during the beginning of Black Lives Matter. Um, and also COVID. During the beginning of Black Lives Matter. Because well, not the beginning of Black Lives Matter, but there was that kind of the resurgence of, of protests that were happening. I might have already been here at that point. I can't remember exactly when that was. Well, I bring it up because Huntington Beach were the kind of the MAGA people who didn't want to wear masks oh, and didn't yeah. want to, wanted to go to church all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Huntington Beach has a, a very weird uh, contingent of conspiracy-inclined f- yes. Jesus-loving people. And not that I have anything against Jesus. Or loving. Or loving. But your parents do. <laughs> No, my parents, look, it's just, you know, I'll say the only thing that I'm not tolerant of is intolerance. There you go. Good. Okay. And there were, there were some aggressive people hanging out in the downtown area of my birthplace during the Oh, you were born pandemic. down there. Well, I was born, born in Long Beach, moved to Huntington when I was five, but mm-hmm. basically, yeah. And your parents have stayed there the whole time? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Do they like it? I mean, Orange County is like, you know, peach-colored Chevron stations and shopping malls. Peach-colored Chevron stations? Yeah. Guess what? You know. That sounds wonderful. Ex- <laughs> I don't think of that. I got, okay, I got to go down there. Even though that's not even in the realm of this podcast, now, now you got me thinking about Huntington Beach. I think I was excited to get out of Huntington Beach because I was always a free spirit and I wanted to meet different kinds of people and go different kinds of places, which is why I also ultimately became a journalist. And um, yeah, I found I've, I've always found Orange County to be at least Huntington Beach to be a bit homogenous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they want to keep it that way, it seems like. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you mentioned that you're you're a journalist. You have written for the likes of Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone, Vice, LA Weekly, Playboy. Um, What'd you write for Playboy? Playboy, only one story, um, which is a long piece um, that I co-reported with my co-founder Madison on... What was it even on? It was basically on all the different facets of psychedelic policy reform that are unfolding right now and all the various opinions around how the psychedelic movement should unfold. So we like spent the day with David Bronner. We went to uh, of the Dr. Bronner's magic soaps and we like took his magical foam bus around the property and you know, talk to him about why he's put so much money towards psychedelic reform. And then we wove that in with interviews from other folks um, talking about, you know, drug development versus decriminalization, mm-hmm. et cetera. Okay. So one of the reasons that I'm talking with you today is um, I was introduced to you through Zoe Wilder, mm-hmm. the great uh, PR person of what would you, what would you call her beat? Cannabis. Mostly cannabis. Mostly cannabis. Psychedelics too, but like... Higher, higher thoughts. Sure. Higher, I don't know. Drugs, kind of. Yeah. Except I don't like to call it drugs. 
Yeah. Am I am I being sensitive about that? I feel like drugs are like pills and like yeah. stuff you inject. Right. Stuff a doctor would give you is drugs. I understand that perspective. And there are people who get very tied to language and what language represents. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. Um I majored in philosophy as an undergrad, so oh. I spend a lot of time thinking about the difference between a semantical versus a conceptual debate. Like, are we talking about the word or are we talking about what the word represents? Yeah. And I personally don't really care that much. Like entheogen, psychedelic, drug, medicine, plant medicine, each of these words have different connotations and histories. We can talk about what those are and what the implications of those are. Yeah. But um, in my mind, a drug is any substance, whether it be coffee, psilocybin mushrooms, or meth, that alters your consciousness. I can agree with that. Fine. Then love is a drug, as Brian Eno or uh, uh, Roxy Music okay, would say. Okay, so let me redefine that then. <laughs> Any substance, external oh. substance that you put into your body that changes your consciousness. Okay. Cotton candy, you're screwed. Sugar is a drug. Yeah. Sugar is absolutely a drug. I know. Then then we go down the rabbit hole, you know? What is art? Oh, <laughs> what is What is a plant? What is, you know, it's like... These conversations are only helpful to a point in my mind. Yeah. Not to 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 shut the conversation down, but Not as someone who majored in philosophy, yes. I think after four years of studying this stuff, I just left feeling like I, you know, there are certain questions I really never want to ask myself or anyone else again. To what degree is this conversation useful? To what degree are we having it because it's intellectually interesting versus mm. productive in some way for ourselves or for society more broadly? Yes. Well, well, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. First of all, we're both writers. So words matter. Words matter. Words matter. And if anybody's going to be the, the police of the words, it's the writers. Number two... I think that our stigma towards drugs mm. is based on the fact that people who have agendas, negative agendas, have put all of these things into one box. Right. Unfairly. Right. And and so I guess that's why I wish there was a better word for weed and shrooms. Yeah. You know? That makes sense. I mean, I think the words that come to mind for me might be medicine plant medicine mm-hmm. or entheogen entheogen or psychedelic um i think cannabis qualifies mm-hmm. as all of those things mm-hmm. yeah okay but you're a shroom expert i don't know that i would call myself an expert but have others called you an expert yeah they have <laughs> i guess i've just for a long time i've my 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 whole shtick for a long time has been i'm as a journalist i'm not the expert i'm the person that talks to experts right but i suppose at some point after a while yeah yeah okay sure i'm a shroom expert okay what's, what's your question when was the first time did you shroom when i was 18 in college what college is this bard college is that back east it's an hour north of new york city on the train Sounds cold. 
Very cold. But I think it's good for native Californians to go somewhere else for college, don't you? Uh, <laughs> I I do think it's good to leave California. Yeah. Um, but I did not like the winter, and I missed my parents. Yeah. How sweet. You're so tied to your family. I'm very tied to my family. Are you the only uh, child they I'm had? I'm an only child. Well, no wonder. You were spoiled, right? <laughs> I suppose so. But I, I have a lot of cousins. I'm also very close to my grandparents. So we're just oh, all very goodness. close. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you're you're at Bard College. Yeah. And some hippie says, eat these. Well, I was friends with these three girls. Um, we were like a little, you had our little freshman pod situation going. And one of them said, "We sh- let's do shrooms. And I didn't know what shrooms were. Like, I, I actually had no idea. I didn't know what they looked like, didn't know what they tasted like, didn't know what they were going to do to me, had never heard of them before. What high school did you go to? I went to Sage Hill in Newport Beach. No drugs down there? I mean, I think the cool kids were doing coke, but I didn't do drugs in high school other than smoking a little bit of weed. Okay. So here you are, 18, far away from home. You like these girls. Yeah. And they're like, let's do shrooms. It's like, okay. So we did them. And um, did you go in the woods? Well, the f- the school was in the woods. It's a liberal <laughs> arts college that's in the woods. It's like a total hippie liberal arts college where there's like naked parties and people. Oh, yeah, it's a whole thing. Did you go outside for your shrimp trip? Yes. Great. Right. Isn't that the ideal way? Yeah. We started our trip at night in the freshman dormitory and then after they started to hit, we wandered out onto the campus. I was definitely pretty overwhelmed. I was crying hysterically at one point. Then another moment I was laughing hysterically. I mean, it was just ups and downs. And then, of course, I made the classic newbie mistake of looking myself in the mirror when I went to the bathroom, which prompted me to run screaming down the hallway of the dormitory. I mean, the whole thing was just... What did you see in the mirror? I remember my face, it was just a very classic mushroom hallucination where my my cheeks were looking really puffy and everything was kind of distorting. Yeah. Were, are you the type of person that sits in front of the mirror and does your hair and makeup for a long, long time? No. Great. So it didn't like damage this like artificial no. vision of yourself? No, no, no. It was no, just I weird. Just, yeah, I just had no idea that that was going to happen. So it was freaky. And so at, at the end of the day, was it a positive experience? It's funny because I don't even remember how I felt after that first shroom trip. I don't remember if I felt like it was really life changing and I wanted to do it again. I think if I had felt that way, I would remember that I had felt that way. Mm-hmm. I think it just sort of ended and I was like, that was crazy. And then a few <laughs> months and then a few months later, I did acid you know, again, had like a really, really crazy experience. Mm-hmm. And at the sa- around the same time, I was discovering philosophy and existentialism. And so 
I was really just, you know, I'm like away from home. I'm in the middle of the forest experiencing my first winter, discovering psychedelics, discovering philosophy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was it's hard to, to separate out the psychedelics from everything else that I was going through. I was sent into a deep existential crisis. I mm. was thinking of quitting school and just like moving to Europe. I wanted to be an au pair. Like I had no idea. <laughs> I was super confused. But at the end of the day, though, both acid and shrooms at Bard in the woods was positive. I I would say so. I mean, I like who I am. Took me a really long time to get here. Took me a lot of misery to get here. But I don't think I would be who I am if I hadn't had those early experiences with psychedelics. So, yeah. I mean, I wish I could go back and just tell my 18-year-old self, I know you're really confused, but, you know, you're kind of blowing up the entire foundation of your inherited values and ideas of what things are so that you can rebuild from the ground up, mm-hmm. which is what it's all about if you're wanting to be a conscious being in this twisted world, I think. I was surprised at the intellectual part of it that you think interesting things. Weed, you think stony things and whatever. Just For some reason, it just doesn't. Sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes it's nice to get a little baked and, and write, do your work, you know. Um, but psychedelics is a totally different thing. Like, right. it, it tries to get to the truth somehow. Hmm. Do you feel that way? Yeah. It's tricky because researchers have identified different qualities that make a psychedelic experience mystical. Have you heard of this? The mystical experience questionnaire. Mm -mm. It was created by a religion, a religion scholar. It was never intended to be used in psychedelic research. It was intended to, to quantify the strength of naturally occurring mystical experiences like fasting. Mm. And, um, now they're using it in the clinical trials at places like Johns Hopkins and New York University, and they've actually found a correlation between the profundity of a person's mystical experience while on a psychedelic and how much healing that they receive from the psychedelic itself. So some of the so one of the qualities of the mystical experience is called the noetic quality, which essentially means that when you are experiencing something on a psychedelic, it feels objectively universally true right that they're you're not wondering like is that god or (laughs) is love the most important thing in the universe you're like that's god and love is the most important thing in the universe now does that mean it is that sense that it's true make it true Mm -hmm. that's the question and at double blind we've always been really committed to not talking about psychedelics as though they're a panacea, not talking about them as though they're for everyone or if they're for you, they're going to fix all your problems or that they're going to save the world. It's not that simple. Mm -hmm. And also psychedelics, as much as they were used to fuel the whole kind of 60s, 70s revolution around love and art and the Beatles and yada yada, everyone knows that history. They've also been used historically by hate groups, even as recently as some of the folks who are uh, the MAGA, the MAGA conspiracy folks. What? 
Psychedelics have historically also been used by hate groups. The Proud Boys are tripping. I don't know that the Proud Boys are tripping, but there was one guy in particular who had a lot, who was getting a lot of uh, press around the time of the January 6th raid. Huh. Who was also talking about psychedelics and referring to himself as a shaman. And we know, too, that psychedelics have been an issue for decades of, quote, like healers, shamans, facilitators using psychedelics essentially to create cults and abusing the power that their followers believe that they have because they're healing them, quote unquote, with psychedelics. I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to make the point that, you know, you're asking about, oh, do psychedelics reveal the truth or, you know, I've had experiences where I feel like I've seen and understood the truth on psychedelics. I actually think that, you know, I've encountered more beautiful, kind-hearted people in the psychedelic community than in any other community that I've ever been a part of. But I also think that it's important to hold these medicines of their complexity and to leave space or possibility for the fact that psychedelics aren't always going to make someone a better person they're not always going to reveal truth but sometimes they're actually going to send someone even more deeply into problematic ideologies or belief systems that they already have Right now, I'd like to talk about double blind because you've you've mentioned it a little bit and you have eight different issues right here in my hand. Yes. Well, seven, actually. Seven. We're working on eight right now. So these are all of your issues. Yes. Okay. First of all, print in 2022. I know. I know. You have. Okay. So this is issue number one. Yes. Issue number one was 92 pages. (laughs) <laughs> is that a long is that long i think so i think that's incredibly and the rest of yours aren't they didn't get yeah. a lot thinner so they're all they're all pretty much 96 pages which is because that's how printers work oh they, they want you to pr- to print in uh i'm forgetting what the denomination is mm-hmm. but it's like it has to be a certain number of pages yeah and if it's not that exact number of pages it has to jump up to the next denomination, which I think is like 12 or 16 or something like yeah. that. So that's why almost all of our issues are 96 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, now, okay, issue number two. Yes. I Okay, I'm going to play the role of your father for a second here. <laughs> Young lady, why are there eight pages, what is this, four, four, four blank pages in this magazine? What are you trying to do? Yeah. Are you on drugs? <laughs> It's art, man. It is art. You got to look more closely at the spreads. They're oh, not dude. blank. It's not blank. Oh! Wow. It's a metaphor. This is art. <laughs> also, there's uh, not a lot of ads in here. Yeah. So, basically... Which is... which is, I'm not taking a dig at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It, it's, I'm just, what I'm saying is I'm super impressed. Thank you. The idea for Double Blind came to me when I was meditating in my apartment in New Orleans. I had the idea I wanted to start a print magazine. I went to Columbia Journalism School for long-form magazine-style writing. It was always a dream of mine to work at The Atlantic. I love, like, I love books. I love print. I love bookstores. I wasn't trying to start, like, a psychedelic media empire. I literally just wanted to make a print magazine on psychedelics. Yeah. And so it was really, really, from the beginning, just a passion project. And... Um, Are you the art director too? No, my best friend David Good is the art director. David Good. David Good, and so I, David and I actually always wanted to start a magazine together, and we talked about it when when we were in college, and um, so he was one of my first calls when I had the idea for Double Blind, and the first issue really just, I mean, you know, we knew nothing. I called up the folks that I had worked with at other newsrooms and other newsrooms before, writers and photographers, and said like, hey, I have this idea, and we don't have any money, and I don't know how we're going to pay to print it, and I don't know if anyone will buy it, but <laughs> do you want to contribute? And everyone was like, yeah. And then I called David, and I'm like, you know, basically same thing. We don't have any money. We don't know this, <laughs> that, whatever, but do you want to design it? Sure. Mm-hmm. So we put it together, um, we printed it um, with the generous help of my parents who helped pay to print the first issue. We were going to do a Kickstarter for a bunch of reasons I won't get into. We couldn't do a Kickstarter. I was freaking out. The point is that that my parents uh, offered to pay, which was ama- amazingly generous God of bless them. them. What, what are their first names? Elise and Carl. Elise and Carl. God bless Elise and Carl. So, so yeah. that's great. So, so we printed the first magazine. Um, it really was also bootstrapped. I mean, it was like the first magazine, you know, I was, it was like the night before we were going to launch David, who's the designer also is pretty tech savvy. And he was like, no problem. I can put together a simple Squarespace store. But he was like having difficulty integrating the credit card thing and the whatever. And I was like freaking out. And I was like, Oh, my God, people are gonna buy but then we're not gonna get their money and this and that. And so then I call up my other really good friend, Max, who's who's now been working with us for two years, who's our CTO. And I was like, Mac, because he's into coding and stuff. And I was like, Max, I was like, I'm in Spain. And I'm here to launch this thing. And the thing's supposed to go live. And the Squarespace thing isn't working. And da da da. And can you just help? I was like, we don't have any money. But he's like, yeah, Shelby, you're one of my best friends. Like, whatever, Aww. it's fine. So, you know, now he works with us. Mm -hmm. as well but it's just like that was how it was you know my mom shipped the magazines from her garage what like it was all as bootstrapped as you can possibly be are are your parents from the 60s generation no they well yes sort of my mom was born in 58 my dad was born in 1960 they neither of them had ever done a psychedelic have ever done psychedelics Mm -hmm. um but they just support me, so. Do they approve of what yeah, this is all about? Yeah, they're really proud of me. Well, yes, but do they approve that their sweet daughter, their only yeah. angel, is writing about this illicit illegal activity? Yeah, totally, because they know that I know what I'm talking about. I'm not like... You do. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm, you, well, I'm a journalist. <laughs> Your I Honor. Like, I got a master's degree in journalism. I put in the time. I put in the effort. You know, it's not like I just am pulling ideas out of my rear. You're on issue eight, 
Working on issue nine right now. Working on issue eight. Working on issue eight. Yes. Are you happy that you did it? Double blind? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, overall, yes. But I would say that, um, you know, for me, there's sort of two two parts to that question. One is, what has double blind done for me personally in my life? Mm-hmm. And secondly, what has double blind done for the world more broadly? And I think about the people who work for double blind, who have been with us from the beginning when we literally had nothing to give them but our gratitude, including Zoe Wilder and her partner, Mike. Um, and I also think about the broader psychedelic community and all the people who have come to our website and really have their lives changed. I mean, that was the thing that was so impactful about being at a fest at our festival was that people were coming up to me all weekend, literally with tears in their eyes saying that double blind has changed their life, which of course is extremely gratifying. Um, because they would never have read this content anywhere else. Yes, because of that. And also because what I mean, I just reflecting back what many folks have told me is that um, the way it's presented is accessible and also feels trustworthy. Like that's something that we hear over and over again from folks is that I know that when you're platforming an expert or or something like we can trust it. And that's something that people are really wanting and there obviously are other psychedelic sites that have been doing this for a long time that are reliable as well um but we've definitely filled kind of like a content gap so to speak on the internet by publishing long robust pieces on a lot of stuff that people weren't writing about we just want to talk about anything people want to know about and so we're not afraid to touch topics like psychedelics and breastfeeding or um, you know, lemon teching, for example, or lemon teching, which is when you put mushrooms in lemon juice and then take a shot of them and it potentiate it, it strengthens the mushroom significantly or topics like combining different drugs, for example, like combining mushrooms and MDMA together, or combining mushrooms, LSD and MDMA together. Like <gasps> that's something that some people do. And for us, it's like, we're not, again, the disclaimers are always there. Like, they're, you know, this is what we know from a scientific perspective. This is what we don't know. Like, make sure you're being mindful. Make sure, you know, you're aware of, you know, set and setting and preparation. And you have the number of the Fireside Project on speed <laughs> dial, which is this free trip sitting hotline and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, but, really? Yeah, but we're not going to not talk about things that people want to know about because otherwise... There's just no information available. Yeah. I Okay. Fireside, it's called? It's called the Fireside Project. You can Google it, and it's a free trip-sitting hotline. I've got a question from okay. one of our Patreons. Great. Here in LA Patreon. Grant Houghton asks, Microdosing. Thoughts on it for shrooms and LSD, like super-regulated medical-grade stuff. In terms of the efficacy of microdosing, I'll just say that it's really, uh, the jury is out. Um, Mm. There have not been very many um, rigorous studies looking at microdosing. We basically are in a situation like what we were in with cannabis Mm. many decades ago where you have 
thousands and thousands of people saying microdosing has changed my life and I feel so much better and it helps with my mood and it helps with my sleep and it helps with my relationships and it helps with my focus and Mm -hmm. it helps with all these things. And then we don't really have the data to back that up. And um, we also do have, we have had a couple studies come out which have said that microdosing is just the placebo effect, which obviously gets people who think that microdosing has changed their lives very Mm. upset. Okay, so when when the way that you frame it though, it almost sounds like they're taking a little a little bit of shrooms every day, every other day. Yeah. So, well, so, so it's also part of their I'll diet just, almost. Yeah, exactly. I'll just say um, you know, firstly just if anyone's interested, Double Blind does have a course on microdosing I saw. where we cover every single thing you could possibly need to know about how to do this and the protocols and the doses and the tracking and the whatever but the point is that if you really want to do microdosing properly you can't just like tear a piece of a shroom off of a cap and just eat it one random day and and hope that you're gonna feel better you gotta pick a dose pick a protocol of which there are several and stick to it for at least 30 days and journal and you don't need to do it every day for 30 days. You can do it. The fat, There's the Fadiman pro- protocol named for the father of modern microdosing, Jim Fadiman, which is every third day. So you, you, you're one day on, two days off. Okay. Then there's the microdosing protocol, which is established by the Microdosing Institute in the Netherlands, which is said to be more effective for folks with depression, and it's one day on, one day off. And then you have Paul Stamitz's protocol, the mycologist, who's either five days on, two days off, or four days on, three days off. I, I need to go back to Amsterdam. Little did I know there was an institute. Have you been to this institute? Never been to the institute. Haven't been to the Netherlands in a long time. You've already blown my mind, by the way. Oh, this that's is fantastic. Nice. That's nice. Uh, so many more questions now. Okay, can I ask you if you've microdosed? Sure. Like this? Yeah, yeah, I do microdose. What What day are you on today? Are you on the well, on or the off? I'm a I'm on the on day, and I'm also a bad I'm a bad example because now I'm doing what you know I roll, but which some people refer to as the intuitive protocol, which often is what happens after folks have been microdosing for a long time, which is essentially that you just kind of take it when you want to. You wake up and you say, yeah, today I feel like Why? I could That's not an eye roll. That's your life. A, yeah. Enjoy your life. Yeah. Right? Right. And trust your body, too. Right. I mean, again, that sounds like a hippie, but trust your body. Also, know what you're up to that day. If you're about to testify in Congress, maybe not be an on day that day. Unless you really want to flip some minds. But I like that idea. Okay, so do you have a scale? Do you measure? Do you make a little tea and like give mm. yourself a shot on your on days? Most but- folks who are microdosing psilocybin do capsules. So again, uh. we get into this in our course. We teach you how to make them. We teach you how to combine them with other types of things like lion's mane. That's called stacking. But the point is that capsules are kind of the way to go in my mind because 
you want a it's just easier you take it like with your vitamin d or whatever else you take in the morning yeah and b you know it ensures consistent dosing right so um you can either buy microdosing capsules if you know someone who is selling them and they're becoming you know much more popular these days especially if you live in la or whatever there's all these underground microdosing brands with pretty packaging and yada yada really oh yeah but uh, also, you know, you can just make them if you buy whole psilocybin mushrooms or if you grow your own. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, we show people how to do that. You grind them up and buy a capsulation machine. I uh, Great segue. I saw that you do have a class for growing your own. Yes, we do. Which I think is probably a lot easier than growing your own weed. Yeah, I've actually never grown my own weed before, so I couldn't tell you. It seems hard to me. It, it seems like you need, well, first it's got to be a female. Like there's all these things, like the soil has to be perfect. The lights has, also smells. Yeah. You know, so, and the cops can bust you. If I'm growing shrooms underneath my kitchen sink, I don't think the cops are ever going to know. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that I, you know, I'm not going to, going to speak on the liability of that per se, because there's no guarantees with anything like this, but, right. um. It's not that hard to do. It's nice to have support because everybody's house is different. Everybody lives in a different climate. Everybody has different things available to them. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's not like that hard to do. Where, where do people find the original spores in order to grow these things? Um, so first I'll just offer the disclaimer that obviously, you know, Folks can choose to grow whatever kind of mushroom they want with our course, but we don't actually teach people how to grow psychedelic mushrooms. We teach people how to grow only legal mushrooms in our Ooh, course. Nice. Which the, the tech is the same, so yeah. they can choose to grow psychedelic mushrooms if go. they want, but that's not something that we're, you know, actively uh, doing or publicize, publicizing because, uh, you know, liability. Um, but also I'll say... Um, with the spores, the psilocybin spores are legal in all states except for California, Idaho, and Georgia. Wait a second! <laughs> yeah, it's, I know. It's pretty mind-blowing. So... What? I... Yeah, 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 yeah. So let me explain. Again, I'm so happy you invited me to your house. <laughs> this is so great. Because you said Georgia, Idaho... And California. Can you believe that? California is on blows my mind. So what that means is that it's kind of an illegal loophole the way that cannabis seeds were in a legal loophole for a long time where essentially it's you know they're legal for quote my I always mess up this word but my microscopy <laughs> microscopy uh -huh. use microscopic use whatever the point is that you can order them and you can like analyze them under a microscope and that's totally legal but it's and you can keep them in your fridge and that's totally legal but as soon as you inject the spores into what we call substrate which is basically soil for mushrooms and then they fruit and they become psychedelic containing mushrooms you're now doing something 
illegal. Right. Now, of course, there's a growing number of jurisdictions where psilocybin-containing mushrooms are decriminalized. That oh. means that doesn't mean that what you're doing is legal. It means law enforcement in the city won't come after you because they're not putting resources towards doing that. But the DEA could still bust down your door if they wanted to. They probably won't yeah. because they're too busy fighting an opioid crisis and they don't care about Joe Schmo growing psilocybin under his, his sink. But again, I'm not a lawyer, and that's a very important disclaimer. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, so that's basically how it works. There's sites that are totally legit. One of them we like called Sporeworks. You can go on there. You can get your spores. They'll get sent to your house. There's tracking and everything. They'll show up on your doorstep. It's all totally above board. You've mentioned ayahuasca a few times. Yes. I'm terrified of ayahuasca. You should be. Oh. It's terrifying. Is it a bad <laughs> idea to do ayahuasca in California? Should I go to, what is it, Peru? Bolivia? Where am um, I supposed to go? I mean, again, it's like everyone has different opinions. On but you're the expert. I'm not the expert, and there's no definitive right answer to any of these questions, so I just always like to be really careful when I answer. Philosophy majors. Eh, Mamma mia. I'm also a journalist. You know, I like to acknowledge that there's different perspectives on things, and those perspectives are legitimate. So I'm just going to share what other folks... Well, okay, so here's what I'll say to that. My oh. philosophy regarding psychedelics is that it's important to... Do research, obviously, and, you know, read about all the different psychedelics and what their effects are and what the cultural history of these medicines are. But ultimately, choosing to do a psychedelic and how you choose to do a psychedelic is a deeply personal choice. And there is an element of just getting quiet and journaling and maybe meeting with a psychedelic integration therapist for a couple of sessions. Oh, really? Um, which is a whole, there's a whole field of psychedelic integration coaches and they'll talk to you about, well, what is your intention and what's your mental health history? What's the mental health history in your family, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but, but to a large degree, it's just about getting quiet, I think, and really asking yourself, why do I want to have this experience? Am I ready to have this experience? What's going to make me feel most supported? So some people mm -hmm. really want to go to the Amazon because they want to do ayahuasca in its traditional mm. context. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, many different indigenous communities who serve ayahuasca and do ayahuasca, but the most prominent group is the Shipibo mm -hmm. people. Have you been to these places? Yeah, so I was in Peru. Wow. Um, well, I've only been to the Amazon once. I went to the Temple of the Way of Light in February of 2020, which is kind of one of the more well-known, reputable ayahuasca retreat centers. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you're going and you're sitting in the Amazon, 
I mean, again, it really depends on where you go. But at the temple, I was sitting with, I want to say seven. I can't remember the exact number. Shipibo, they're called maestras. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're elders. And they have gone through extensive trainings around uh, what they call dietas, which is essentially where they go into isolation and they just consume the plants. And sometimes for as long as a year, they go by themselves into the jungle and just consume plants and just familiarize themselves with the spirit of the plants. So they microdose for a year, basically. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if microdosing is the right word, but they do, you know, they, they consume plants for a year, just plants. essentially, and commune with the plants and the spirit of the plants. And many of them also come from families that have a history of serving these medicines. So they grew up around the culture of it. Mm. And so it's just very different to experience, you know, a setting like that, as opposed to if you go sit in a ceremony in California, well, there are a lot of visiting shamans from other parts of the world, like Ecuador, Colombia, Peru. So it's possible to sit with a, an indigenous shaman from that part of the world in California. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes you're sitting with with a, quote, Westerner who may or may not have spent time in the Amazon, who got into this in more recent years, within the last, like, 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Um, and then they're being... Um, supported by what we often refer to as guardians, which are the people who are supporting the primary facilitator. They're swapping out the puke buckets. They're walking around. They're making sure everyone is tended to and feels supported. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's beautiful to go to the Amazon and experience the medicine in its traditional context. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, but you know, it's, it's a schlep. It's like, it's far, it's, it's really expensive. Usually mm-hmm. a retreat is going to start at $1,500 and then you also have to pay for your flight to the Amazon. And then the retreat is going to be about at least a week long. Usually you're going to wow. usually be sitting in at least four or five ceremonies, sometimes more. Um, these cere- all these ceremonies, I'm under the effects. Yes, yes, yes. Whereas so if you, you a go... a five-day trip. Yes. Well, you you usually you journey and then at night and then you have the daytime to journal and do yoga and whatever. And then again, you journey, you journey again in the evening. Wow. And then sometimes they take days off in between the ceremonies, but it's pretty much consecutive for the duration of the retreat. So it's intense. So it's, it's, it's extremely intense. And I think that it's amazing to be disconnected from your phone to be in a container where you know you're really getting to know the other folks that are there with you it's like an intense spiritual version of summer camp or something (laughs) um but also you know maybe you feel like you know i don't have the time or i don't have the money to go to the amazon or i also maybe don't want to go all in like that i just want to experience the medicine and if you sit somewhere in California, I mean, obviously it's underground, it's illegal, so that's something you have to be comfortable with. But usually the ceremonies is, is going to be two nights. It's going to be on a weekend. So you're mm-hmm. going to go 
arrive around noon on a Friday. You'll sit Friday night. You'll get up and everyone sleeps over. You get up on Saturday morning. You hang out with everybody, play music, make breakfast, whatever. Then Saturday night you drink again. Then Sunday you go home. And it's Mm. like, you know, if you live in L.A., there's a million and LA is the the hub of the the global hub of of ayahuasca. It is? Yeah, absolutely in terms of metropolitan areas outside of the Amazon. I mean, there's dozens of ceremonies happening in LA every weekend and in New York and, you know, I had no idea. So you just have to be really careful to go to someone who knows what they're doing and mm-hmm. who's trusted. I didn't know that LA that much ayahuasca is going down here. Yeah, that's that's quite a bit. Pretty great. Mm-hmm. Is it is it happening mostly in the valley? Like, is it happening it's in a natural ex- place or a beautiful home like this? Like, it's outdoors, right? No. Um. Usually, ayahuasca ceremonies happen. Um. They'll happen in a home, or they'll happen oftentimes in sort of like an indoor outdoor structure like a um a maloca is what we sat in 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 peru it's um i I don't really know how to describe it it's basically like a giant yurt yeah that's what i meant by the canvas yurt um so um because for some reason you you do want to be inside of a thing right you want to be warm like like almost a womb experience yeah Yeah, I would say so. Let's talk about your beautiful neighborhood. Mm, Okay. You live in Angelino Heights, mm-hmm. best known for. Best known for Carol. You're, you're pretty close to it. Right, right. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I'm not going to give away where you live. Around the corner, um, and it's known for its historic Victorian mansions, which were all built, yeah, in the early 1900s. For folks listening, I don't live in a mansion. I live in a little, a little. What would you call this? Like a barn? I kind of think of it as like a barn. It's red on the outside. Anyway. It, it, okay. It fits. I was walking up the street and I was like, which one is it? And I was like, oh, that's where a hippie would be. Well, thank you. So the Carroll <laughs> Avenue is cool. So it's all, you know, there's a lot of, um, so it's like turrets and, you know, wraparound balconies and giant, uh, you know, kind of Roman pillars. And yeah. the whole thing is it's just very grandiose architecture over there on Carroll. And um, <laughs> and they keep it up really nice. They do keep it up really nice. And lots and lots of movies have been filmed here that are famous. The Michael Jackson thriller music video was filmed in a, in a decrepit mansion on Carroll. Wow. The ch- movie Charmed, the movie about the witches from the 90s was filmed on Carol. Yep. Across the street from me is the, oh, now I'm giving away where I live, but across the street from me is the Fast and the Furious house. So we've, we have, I hate to say it, characterize it this way, but pretty annoying people that come and do wheelies outside my house all the time. They and, do? Yeah, they do. They like double park in the middle of the street. And I'm kind of turning into that get off my lawn lady. Like I go out there in my robe, I'm like, this is. 
did. <laughs> but people are always coming in and, in and out and, and parking and taking pictures in front of the Fast and the Furious house. Um, but also, also in Mad Men, it was Don Draper's childhood home, I think. It was? Where he, he like revisits it and it was kind of decrepit. Because there are some... That's here? Yeah. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. Cause, so... Because not every house is perfect. Yeah. It's L.A. Yes. And so some some look haunted, some look brand new, but they all kind of look San Franciscan. Right. Because it's that Victorian era. Yes. And what I like about this neighborhood is you're super close to downtown, you're close right. to the freeway, you're close to Dodger Stadium. Um, you're yeah. Also, you're also close to Guisados. Yes. I'm right across the street from Guisados, which is a famous taco place for folks who are listening. But I'll say- Which I'll be eating so I'm at very, very soon. I'm very passionate about Angelino Heights because- to me, it feels like a really special little pocket that a lot of people don't know about. And for me, one of the reasons why I loved New Orleans and why I didn't want to move back to L.A. was because there's a real sense of being in a neighborhood and everyone kind of looking out for everybody else. And mm-hmm. growing up in Huntington Beach, I didn't know any of my neighbors. And L.A. is a city where a lot of folks don't know their neighbors, regardless of what neighborhood they live in. There's just a culture of folks don't know their neighbors. And mm-hmm. I, I don't like that at all so i uh, to me it was important to feel some sense of community and um and this certainly has that i mean granted i've made made a big effort to you know knock on doors and say hi and everything like that but you know there's definitely um people are, are passionate about maintaining the culture and and keeping it up well you have opened up my eyes today and i'm very gr- glad that you did and if people want to find Double Blind, yes. they should, first of all. Aww. This is a great magazine. Thank you. It's so beautiful, and it's a little trippy, which I like. <laughs> it's very arty. Yeah. Um, here in L.A., are there bookstores that they can get it at? Uh, not really. Our only stockist in L.A. is Skylight Books. God bless them. Love them. A lot of bookstores, we didn't really get into this much, but uh, a lot of bookstores do not carry magazines. Um, in general? In general. Just not? Magazines, period. Why? In general. Because um, they expire? I don't, think? I don't know. You'd have to ask the bookstores, um, but... Yeah, that's a thing. So, so like, Glass Bookstore doesn't want magazines. I'm not sure if Glass Bookstore carries magazines, but I can tell you that there are a number of bookstores that don't, including like Stories and Echo Park, for example, is my wow. local bookstore is my favorite bookstore, and they don't carry magazines. I love stories. And the you know, if you you'll start to notice if you go to bookstores and you look around for the magazines, there that they don't have a lot of them do not have magazines. Wow. Um. Billy just wants attention. Is Billy yeah. always like this? Yes. This is... I'm going to take a picture if you don't mind. This dog is... Couldn't be more adorable. She likes to... Um, she likes to squeak her squeaky toys. She at just the most wants to inop- play. Inopportune times. You just want to play. That's what I told... The mushrooms told me that she's my teacher of patience and my teacher of... Or what is she? My teacher of... Teacher of patience and teacher of care. Oh. Yeah. 
Okay, so where can we find Double Blind if we don't live near Skylight Books? You can subscribe. Doubleblindmag.com. Great. It'll get shipped to your door. It's actually better for us if you buy it through the website. Oh. Because bookstores take such a significant cut. They do? They do, they do. Well, they got to pay for all those. Those are excellent people over there. In fact, we interviewed one for our Los Feliz Absolutely. Edition. I'm all about bookstores. We're happy to support them however we can, but it's a terrible model for publishers. It really is. So go to doubleblindmag.com. Yes. Uh, would you like them to follow you on any of your socials or anything? Sure, like that? they can follow. They can follow the magazine. I don't really post on my personal accounts. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you can. I'm at Shelby Ann A N N E Hart, but you won't see anything other than pictures of my golden doodle. Nothing wrong with that. Um, it, um, double blind is on all the platforms. We're like on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook. Instagram at double blind mag. Got it. Yes. Shelby, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for having me. Sorry about the squeaks. Hmm, I don't care. <laughs> I hope they don't care either. All right, everybody. You heard her. As soon as you shroom, get behind the wheel and drive straight to the police department. <laughs> Just kidding. Thank you. How great was Shelby? You know whose hair we'd hold as they purge during a trip on in the Amazon? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony Jordan, we get it. You don't have time to recalibrate your soul, so here's some Mucho Doloreses. So shout out to our Patreons. Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Granke, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, and our newest Patreon, Adam Shorn. Want to hear your name at the end of the next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal us 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website or Medium blog forever. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. You want to support us, but you've lost your shirt in Vegas betting that Sarah Palin would win that Alaskan congressional race? Ha ha! You can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post two. Tweet something nice about this. Anytime you see me tweet about an episode, retweet it. It's free. It's a click. Let's practice. Click. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell them how Here in L.A. is spelled, and it's on Apple and Google and Spotify and Amazon podcasts. Here in L.A. is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who you should call if you're having a bad trip. And you know what he'll do? He'll play a little medley of soothing tunes on his trombone right into the phone. Mr. Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Actually, don't call him if you're having a bad trip. You can call me. I'll whistle. Songs by Oregon and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy, who just celebrated her 21st birthday for celebrating. Er, for <laughs> Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and good friends everywhere who tripsit their friends so that the turbulence is mild and the landings are soft. Don't, Don't look, look in, look the, in mirror. the mirror!